Welcome to You News, the podcast, using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Thursday, June 17th. I'm Carolina Saraza, and these are today's headlines. President Biden back in Washington after his meeting with the Russian president. The big question is the future of the relationship between the two countries. The White House continuing its overhaul of Trump-era immigration policy, the latest move aiming to help those looking for asylum here in the U.S. And the COVID-19 vaccination rates going down, even as health experts continue to warn about the increasing dangers of the Delta variant for those who have not been vaccinated. This and much more today on U News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. We begin with this. President Biden back home at the White House after a trip to Europe that lasted eight days. That trip ending with a historic summit between Biden and the Russian president. Both leaders agreeing that their meeting in Geneva was a positive step. But when it came to controversial issues, they still remain at odds. Andre Linares explains. Today, President Biden is back at the White House after an eight-day trip to Europe and a historic summit with Russian President Vladimir Putin. I did what I came to do. The two leaders shaking hands and smiling for the world to see. After more than two and a half hours, both sides giving their talks a positive review. Biden even gifting Putin a pair of his signature aviators. Putin calling their discussions frank and very open. I think there was no hostility, quite the contrary. The talks were quite constructive. The tone of the entire meetings, I guess it was a total of four hours, was, 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 was good, positive. But there were divisions on critical issues, such as cybersecurity and human rights. On cybersecurity, after those attacks that crippled a U.S. gas pipeline and targeted the meat industry, Biden says critical infrastructure should be off limits giving Putin a list of 16 areas from the energy sector to the water supply. But Putin still defiant, denying all responsibility for cyber attacks and interfering in U.S. elections. They've said that most of the cyber attacks in the world are carried out from the cyber realm of the United States. Biden warning Putin the U.S. stands ready to retaliate. I pointed out to him we have significant cyber capability and he knows it. he doesn't know exactly what it is but it's significant i think that the last thing he wants now is a cold war at times also biden rebuked his russian counterpart after he equated jailing political opponents with arresting rioters who stormed the capital as for who is killing whom or throwing whom in jail people came to the u.s congress with political demands 400 people. <laughs> My response is kind of what I communicated, but I think that's a, uh, that's a ridiculous comparison. President Biden later grew visibly angry when pressed by a reporter on why he's optimistic Putin will change his ways. Why are you so confident he'll change his behavior, Mr. President? Yeah, I'm not confident changing behavior. What the hell, what do you do all the time? So when did I say I was confident? You I said, said in the next six months I said, to what I said was, let's get it straight. I said what will change their behavior is that the rest of the world reacts to them and it diminishes their standing in the world. I'm not confident of anything. I'm just stating the fact. The president later apologized to that reporter for the heated exchange. 
One of the results from the conversations between Biden and Putin is that ambassadors from the U.S. and Russia will return to their diplomatic posts. As for what comes next, Biden is taking a wait-and-see approach, saying it could take six months to a year to see whether the dialogue had any impact. In Miami, Florida, Andrea Linares, U News. Thank you, Andrea, for that report. And now some big news out of the White House. President Joe Biden is signing today into law the bill that makes Juneteenth a federal holiday. The National Independence Day Act moved through Congress this week and the House and Senate both passing it just days before the holiday which this year falls on a Saturday. Juneteenth, also known as Freedom Day or Emancipation Day, commemorates the day that slaves in Texas learned they were free back in 1865. And also in Washington, the Department of Education has issued a reversal on the Trump administration's stance toward gay and transgender students. Officials say Title IX prohibits discrimination that's based on gender identity and sexual orientation. Education Secretary Miguel Cardona issued a statement that says, quote, all students, including LGBTQ plus students, deserve the opportunity to learn and thrive in schools. Former President Trump said rights for transgender and gay students were not protected by the law. Under his administration, transgender students had to use bathrooms and facilities that corresponded to birth gender. Meanwhile, the Department of Education is erasing debt for 18,000 borrowers who attended the for-profit college ITT Tech. The school, which closed in 2016 was found to have exaggerated graduate success rates in finding jobs. The move announced Wednesday marks a step forward in the Biden administration's effort to clear a backlog of claims in a program providing loan forgiveness to students defrauded by their colleges. And to understand more, we are joined by Alex Elson. He's with the Student Borrower Advocacy Group, Student Defense. Thank you so much for your time, Alex. Thank you very much for having me, Carolyn. So what was your reaction to this announcement? So our reaction here that this announcement, this was a very good first step for the 18,000 borrowers who are receiving this relief, but that there's also a lot more that can be done. So to back out a little bit, under the law, if your school closed or if you were defrauded by your school, you may be eligible for debt relief. So this is separate and distinct, I should say, from all of the discussion in the news recently about widespread debt relief that would be, you know, with respect to everybody who had student loans. So what the Biden administration has done is grant relief for, as you say, 18,000 students who attended one school, ITT, on the basis that they were defrauded. Um, ITT was a large for-profit college. It closed in 2016 after years of scandal. Um, and while the department is discharging debt for these 18,000 students, um, that's only a portion of the students who have applied for relief and a, even a tinier fraction of those uh, that attended the school. And so the administration hasn't said what it plans to do for the remaining students. But again, this is a good first step, but it's also long overdue. There's a lot more that the administration can do for ITT students, as well as for students who attended other for-profit schools and other institutions, hundreds of thousands of students across the country. And just on that, why is this that relief happening now when these claims have been lingering since the Obama administration? 
It's a good question. What happened um, at the end of the Obama administration, more and more debt relief claims started to be granted. When President Trump was elected and Secretary DeVos took over the Department of Education, all debt relief was frozen. Uh, no progress was made on debt relief in four years. And now the Biden administration is showing signs that, that it is interested and in pursuing uh, meaningful debt relief for student loan borrowers. So this is a good sign. But so many, hundreds of thousands of borrowers have been in limbo for many, many years. And it is really time, it is long past time to start taking action and to get this right for, yes, these 18,000 people, but for many, many more across the country who are really in need of relief. And now students at for-profit colleges claim they were misled and lied to, even pressured to enroll at some of these for-profit colleges. Can you talk to us more about the claims? Absolutely. So students here, what, what the department has done has Grant, is, is granting relief for students who have claimed, and there are tens of thousands of students who have made these claims, that their school lied to them about the promises of employment, about whether or not the credits would be able to transfer to other institutions. And we see many, many for-profit schools mostly that have made these types of claims to student borrowers. Hundreds of thousands have applied to the Department of Education seeking relief on the basis that the schools lied to them. Um, and there are still, um, as you said earlier, a large backlog of claims that, that need to be decided and that need to be decided pretty quickly. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Alex Elson of the organization Students Defense. Thank you for having me. Now, in other news out of Washington, the Supreme Court has dismissed a challenge to the Affordable Care Act, preserving insurance coverage for millions of Americans. The justices left the entire law intact. The law's major provisions include protections for people with pre-existing health conditions, a range of non-cost preventive services, and the expansion of the Medicaid program that ensures lower-income people, including those who work in jobs that don't pay much or provide health insurance. In economic news, the number of Americans applying for unemployment benefits rose last week for the first time since April, despite major evidence that shows the economy and the job market are rebounding from the pandemic recession. The Labor Department said that first-time filings for unemployment insurance for the week ending last Friday totaled 412,000. And now to the latest on the pandemic here in the U.S. Health experts warning that by default we might be facing two COVID nations, states in the south with the low vaccinations, experiencing waves of infections, and those in the northeast virtually free of this virus. Lorraine Casares explains. The rate of vaccinations in the U.S. crawling, slowly inching closer every day to the Biden administration's goal of 70% of adults with at least one dose. The seven-day average of daily vaccinations falling to almost 200,000 a day, not enough to make the 4th of July deadline. Maybe it'll be 68, maybe it'll be a little bit more, but the real danger is that 68 or 70% will look much higher in some parts of the country and much lower in other parts of the country. The Delta variant now becoming the main concern for health officials. This is um, basically COVID-19 on steroids. It's already being reported in 37 states. Areas in the South where there's been a lag in vaccinations like Mississippi and Alabama are of special concern. 
if you remember this time last year, we saw this massive surge across the South um, uh, starting around after July 4th holiday. In Tennessee, where just a third of the state is fully vaccinated, at least 10 cases have been reported in the Memphis area alone. We still have in Shelby County 300,000 people who have no immunity to this virus at all. Left uncontrolled, each case would create five new cases. Dr. Anthony Fauci says he is not concerned with those who are fully vaccinated. The Pfizer vaccine already proven to be 88% effective against the Delta variant after the second dose. We're facing the prospect of two COVID nations where things will look great in the Northeast in California, but down here in the South, uh, we're, it's gonna be a very rocky, uh, bumpy road. I think you'll see outbreaks, particularly uh, come fall, and you know we'll see these in amusement parks, and and we'll see them in churches, and we'll see them at weddings, we'll see them in places where people are not vaccinated, and so look, a lot more responsibility is back on to the public, because we are moving from COVID as a kind of existential threat to COVID as just what I'd call a manageable challenge. And regarding the vaccines and the rare condition of myocarditis, a small study published by the American Heart Association found that the symptoms usually clear themselves within a matter of days. Most people were discharged from the hospital between two and four days. Right now, health officials are trying to investigate if there is at all a link between the rare condition of heart inflammation and mRNA vaccines. Meanwhile, Health and Human Services announced that the U.S. government is ready to invest 30 billion to develop an antiviral pill to treat COVID-19 in the future. In Miami, Lorraine Cáceres, U News. Thank you, Lorraine, for that live report. And now for some people who have contracted the virus, surviving their battle with COVID-19 was not enough. A small percentage are still having difficulties with their ongoing health issues. Grecia Lastra has the story of some of these long haulers. Maria Peralta thought her discomfort from COVID-19 would go away soon after she tested negative. It was in the middle of April and May, a month after Maria never imagined that she would have to deal with the aftermath of the virus. A pain here in the chest with a noise in the ears and pain in the head and the body. It's lasted a long time for a few months. It is the same thing that almost a quarter of the patients who were diagnosed with COVID-19 say they feel. Among them, high cholesterol, fatigue, high blood pressure, intestinal problems, migraines, mental health problems, including anxiety and depression. What these figures tell us is that their real cost of the public health is even higher than previously estimated. With COVID being a new sickness, we will have a lot to learn. It also says that post-COVID symptoms can last up to a year. Many of these symptoms are not showing simultaneously, so a person can lose their sense of smell, recover it, and then gastrointestinal symptoms appear or from the heart as blood pressure and cholesterol levels rise. Most of the COVID-19 after effects are related to the inflammatory events caused by the virus. Reported by Blanca Rosa Virches in New York City, this is Grecia Lastra for U News. More of you news after the short break.
Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The effects of COVID-19 will be felt for decades to come. Both parties are very far apart. Approximately 250,000 people have lost their lives. You news covers the news of your world. It makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. You news on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. And Texas Governor Greg Abbott also announcing that state is setting aside $250 million to build its own border wall with Mexico. Abbott said the public can also help fund construction through donations. He said the wall will cost far more than $250 million, but it's a, quote, down payment and enough to get started. The Republican governor blames what he calls the Biden administration's open border policies for problems along the divide line. He said the state will be sending the administration a letter asking about the land seized from Texans to build a border wall under former President Trump, a project that was halted ever since. On Thursday, the Biden administration ended a Trump-era policy that made it hard for immigrants escaping domestic violence or gang violence to win asylum in the U.S. Edwin Pitti is live in Washington with the latest. Edwin. That's right, Carolina. The Biden administration continues to walk away from controversial immigration policies put in place by former President Donald Trump. The Attorney General Mary Garland said that now immigrant judges should stop following the Trump-era rule that made it difficult for immigrants who face domestic or gang violence to win their cases for humanitarian protection here in the United States. Many Central Americans arrive on the border fleeing gang violence in their countries, but it is not easy to qualify for asylum under U.S. immigration laws, and the Trump-era policy had made it even harder. Take a listen. I believe that the uh, Jeff Sessions and Bill Barr uh, changes to the process of asylum uh, were changes that made the process inhumane. So I think this change is welcome, and I think that the changes that will uh, be implemented now will help thousands of people. Let's take a look at some numbers from the Executive Office of Immigration Review. In this graphic that you're going to see, you can see how during the Trump administration, especially in 2020, the denial rate in asylum cases reached 54.53%, while the grant rate was as low as 19.12%. According to numbers from the Department of State in the current fiscal year, people from Russia and Cameroon have seen higher asylum grant rate in immigration courts than people from El Salvador, Guatemala and Honduras. Despite the changes announced by the Department of Justice, immigrants will have to present enough evidence to prove their claims as victims of domestic violence or gangs. And according to experts, that continues to be a challenge for some migrants who escape without collecting the necessary documentation to present before a judge. Also, now Republicans fear that this change could lead to another influx of migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border. Live in Washington, D.C., Caro, back to you. Thank you, Edwin, for that live report. Meanwhile, a new effort from the government is hoping to stop a disturbing trend of unaccompanied children abandoned by coyotes. Janet Rodriguez explains how. 
The State Department has expanded the Central American Minors Program, which would allow more children from the region to enter the United States legally. Estas son noticias muy positivas que sin duda van a impactar a niños centroamericanos en una situación. This is very positive news that is going to impact Central American children in dangerous situations and offer them an alternative instead of having to cross through Mexico and all the dangers that we know exist. The program was established in 2014 but was stopped by the Trump administration. It allows parents from El Salvador, Guatemala and Honduras who are legally living in the U.S. to apply for refugee status for their children under the age of 21. And now the expansion will include parents and legal guardians who have applied for and have pending asylum or U visa cases from before May 15, 2021. It is estimated that up to 100,000 minors could benefit, but under the program there is no pathway to citizenship. It is a humanitarian that could only be for two years and cannot lead to permanent residency. The reopening of the program comes as part of the Biden administration's efforts to create more avenues for illegal immigration and to counteract the increase of minors who have presented themselves alone at the border in the last few months. However, this attorney warns that the process is lengthy and does not address the immediate need of many of these minors fleeing danger. The process takes 9 to 12 months and can only be done through organizations designated by the State Department. Reported by Janet Rodriguez in Washington, D.C., U News. Thanks for listening to U News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow U News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.